Thank you so much, Mike. This morning as we continue in our Encounters with Jesus sermon series, we're going to be looking, as Mike already prepped us, uh, for Luke chapter 19. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter 19. As you are turning to Luke chapter 19, I think many of us are familiar with the encounter that uh, Jesus had, excuse me, with Zacchaeus. And I think that's true, especially for our children, because uh, there's something about climbing trees that excites every child, you know. I think it's also true that uh, we like the idea of grown-ups climbing trees. You don't see that very often. It's very unusual. It's very strange. Personally, though, I think that uh, the main reason, the primary reason that we remember the story of Zacchaeus and his encounter with Jesus is because we all grew up singing about Zacchaeus, right? We sang about him in junior church. We sang about him in vacation Bible school and Sunday school. And and I can't think of a better thing to do the day that we start recruiting for our children's ministries than to have you stand with me now and join me. We're going to pretend we're going to go back in time and pretend we're sitting in one of those classrooms. You're not standing. Stand with (laughs) We're going to stand like we're in one of those classrooms. And as I project the words up there to this old familiar song, On the screen, I'd like for you to sing Zacchaeus with me, okay? And by the way, there are some recruiters out here for our children's ministry. If you do a good job, don't be afraid if somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder at the end. But let's go ahead and sing. Ready? Let's go. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, and Lord, he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Good job, everybody. The recruiting table's right there in the back. You know, interestingly, as we sing that song, it leaves us with an impression that, uh, that Zacchaeus was this sweet old man whose only problem was that he, he was... Um, short and unable to see Jesus over the crowd. And yet a a simple reading here of Luke 19 will quickly demonstrate that in addition to being short, if you're taking notes, my first point, Zacchaeus was also, I believe, an unhappy and searching sinner. And I get that impression or I get that understanding as I look here, especially at the first four verses of this text. Follow along as I read verses one through four. He, speaking of Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree, for he was about to pass that way. Let me add verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Several things we observe here about this man, Zacchaeus. Looking here at verse 2, the first thing I would point out is he was a man of position. Zacchaeus was a man of position. I get that from the title, chief tax collector. The word chief indicates here or implies that Zacchaeus, who, by the way, whose name means 
righteous or innocent one, was responsible for the entire collection of all the taxes for the Romans in Jericho, who, by the way, the Romans were holding the Jewish people captive here, the land of Israel captive. To finance their great world empire, the Romans levied pretty heavy taxes on the nations that they occupied. And the, Jew, the Jews, even though they opposed these taxes because they supported a secular government and their pagan gods, they were forced to pay it. They didn't like it one bit. And so imagine Zacchaeus, a Hebrew himself, a tax collector on his own countrymen. You can imagine how his fellow countrymen felt about him. He was recognized as a lowlife backstabbing renegade in the eyes of his fellow Jews. For matters make, making matters worse here, the Roman authorities really didn't care about the amount of taxes that these tax collectors collected just so long as Rome got their portion, the appropriate cut. And therefore, a corrupt, uh, uh, a cor a corrupt tax collector like Zacchaeus could extort people without having to worry about any fairness or any judgment for doing that. Man of position, man of authority. The second thing I see is Zacchaeus was not only a man of position, but also a man with power. Because of his position with the Roman authorities, although small in stature, I can guarantee you Zacchaeus would have been uh, feared uh, in the hearts of the eyes of the people living there in Jericho. And the very fact that, uh, that Zacchaeus was a Jewish man collecting taxes from his own people clearly indicates that he cared really very little about what people thought of him, and even less if it meant people getting hurt as he collected it. A man of position, a man of power, and a man of prosperity is the third thing I see in this text, verse 2 again. It says he was rich, he was wealthy, and clearly according, however, to the text, uh, his wealth was amassed unjustly. And I love what God's word in Jeremiah, the prophet in Jeremiah 17 warns, as a partridge, isn't it a beautiful picture, a vivid picture, as a partridge that hatches eggs, which has not, it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but does so unjustly, in the midst of his days it will forsake him, and in the end he will be a fool, a man of prosperity, a man of prosperity. And that brings me forth here, he was a man with a problem. Zacchaeus was a man with a problem. You see, although very wealthy and although very successful, I am convinced that Zacchaeus desperately knew that deep down in his gut, deep down in his heart, there was something important, something meaningful or significant missing in his life. And how do I arrive at that conclusion? Well, as you read through this narrative, you're forced to ask yourself, as I did this week, why in the world would a full-grown man, an elderly man, obtain, who's obtained and achieved so much, um, and, and be willing to run down the street and climb a tree just to see Jesus? Why would he submit himself to the obvious ridicule that such actions would have surely brought upon himself if he did not believe that Jesus had something that he needed? Folks, I am convinced that Zacchaeus had reached a place in his life at this point that something had to be done, something had to give. He could no longer keep his emptiness buried inside of him. And let me assure you today that Zacchaeus' problem is neither a unique or a new problem. In fact, I can't begin to tell you the number of people who are very successful over the years that I've met and counseled. They have nearly everything that this world has to offer, and yet there remains an unexplainable emptiness and a restlessness in their souls. 
such people who encounter this kind of restlessness deal with it in a variety of different ways, always temporal, most often damaging. For example, many try to drown their emptiness with alcohol. Some try to medicate their pain through drugs. Others resort to gluttony or sexual immorality to mask their pain. And still others, I believe, bury their emptiness in the shallow grave of materialism or by working themselves to an early grade. But when they lay their heads down at night, when it's all quiet and no one's around, the truth about their emptiness sounds louder in their souls than, than the blast of a thousand trumpets. And that's because, and that's because Ezekiel was about to discover that there is nothing, hear me well, there is nothing in this world that can provide the lasting peace and fulfillment that a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ can provide. Nothing, nothing. With that in mind, looking back at our text here, one can imagine the thousands of thoughts that must have been running through Zacchaeus' heart and mind as he was running ahead of the crowd to see Jesus. And you imagine what he's thinking. Who, who is this man, he must have been thinking, who loves people in spite of what they are or what they look like or what they have done in the past? Who is this man, he must have been thinking, who actually eats and drinks and speaks with collectors of taxes and prostitutes? Is it really true that he can provide for me the acceptance and the forgiveness and the fulfillment that I am so deeply craving down in my heart? Arriving at the place that Jesus would pass, as noted earlier, Zacchaeus found another problem that needed to be resolved. Being short, he could not get over the crowd. He wasn't able to get close enough. And, and given Zacchaeus' uh, reputation, I don't imagine that many people would have welcomed him to take, you know, get close. But Zacchaeus was clearly a man of resources. And at this point, I am convinced that he was untroubled by any concern of dignity whatsoever. And so the scriptures tell us here that he ran ahead of the crowd and he climbed a sycamore tree. Looking at this text and his curiosity and his enthusiasm and the joy, I, I, I couldn't help but think when I got here of Jesus' instruction in Luke chapter 18, verse 7. You remember that? Where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And he was certainly exhibiting that kind of joy, wasn't he? And that brings me fifth here. The Zacchaeus' actions, I think, demonstrate that he was a man of persistence. He was a man of persistence. Clearly at this point, Zacchaeus had determined in his heart that he wasn't going to allow anything to stand between him and seeing Jesus. Not the crowd, not, not any criticism that he was likely going to receive, not his stature, not his pride. Nothing was going to keep him from seeing Jesus. But I find what most exciting in this text, in the narrative here, is not only was Zacchaeus on the search and persistently seeking someone, so was Jesus. In fact, look at the determination and the declaration that Jesus makes in verse 10. In fact, rather than me reading it, let's read it out loud together. You ready? Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. One more time. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Folks, from this bold declaration by our Savior, we learn Jesus is a compassionate and a seeking Savior. 
And we see this so clearly and so beautifully demonstrated in what is written here in verses 5 through 7. Look at what it says. And when Jesus came to the place, the tree, right? He looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and he came down and he received my love it joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. This is the crowd. He is going in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Imagine the scene here. Jesus is walking along. Everywhere Jesus went, he was mobbed by a crowd, right? The townspeople all over. All of a sudden, Jesus stops. He looks up into a tree above where he sees Zacchaeus. And then remarkably, Jesus called Zacchaeus by name. And he invited him to come down, right, from that tree. And because he, he, he says literally here, I love it, I must go. He must go to your house today. And immediately it says, beyond any embarrassment now, no put out whatsoever, according to verse 6, Zacchaeus here, scrambled. I mean, like a child running down a tree and welcomed Jesus into his home joyfully, joyfully. Verse 7 tells us that Zacchaeus must have been a pretty rough character because it said the crowd reacted with great displeasure that Jesus would have chosen him over them and everyone else. But Zacchaeus, although was clearly a renegade in the eyes of his fellow crowd and Jews there, he was a precious lost sinner. He was a precious lost sinner in the eyes of our Savior Jesus. Now may, if I can here, uh, interject something. Let me interject something here that I found very interesting and very practical. Side note, perhaps, but uh, about Zacchaeus's invitation here and his response to Jesus's invitation. You see, I believe that Jesus came to Jericho for only one reason. Jesus came to make a difference in the life of a man, don't miss this, who was despised, who was rejected, and who was lost. However, whether or not, I'm convinced of this, whether or not Jesus would actually go to Zacchaeus' house at this moment was completely or entirely dependent on Zacchaeus' response. I believe if he hadn't come down from that tree, Jesus would have just continued on his way. Jesus, you see, does not, or he will never force himself on anyone. And with that thought in mind, the thing that makes Zacchaeus' response so noteworthy to me is the fact that although Zacchaeus doesn't realize it or know it at this time, in just one week from this moment, Jesus would hang on a cross for the sins of all mankind. In other words, Jesus would never pass through Jericho again. My friends, I believe the application is strong and clear here. The fact is that opportunities for getting right with God do not always keep coming day back day after day, week after week. Yet so many people, when I share the gospel, will put that off. They'll put that response at an invitation. Oh, oh they'll tell me, I'll get, to the, I'll get down to business with God eventually. Maybe next week, uh, maybe in the summer, next year. But right now is never, never convenient for them. And I believe such an attitude as I look at this text here is so dangerous because we do not know when we may have lost, had the last chance to hear the gospel and to receive Christ as our Savior. I want to urge you then, if you're sitting here today and you're running from God, or you're hesitating or putting off, putting your trust in him, please come to him today. Don't put it off. Well, I love this. 
He put together a searching, humble sinner with a compassionate, seeking Savior. And the result is my third main point, a magnificent salvation. When was Zacchaeus actually saved? We don't know exactly. The passage does not specify. The only thing we do know for sure is that it was that day. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, Jesus declared today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Please note with that statement, Jesus is not saying that Zacchaeus was saved because he was a Jewish man, but rather that he was now a true spiritual descendant of Abraham through faith in Christ. Paul makes a similar comment in Galatians 3.29 when he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. In addition, you can't help but see Christ to Christ's direct declaration of Zacchaeus' salvation, evidence of his newfound faith, I can, I can see it in his immediate Christ-like transformation. The heart was changed. Look at verse 8. Behold, Lord, he says, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Clearly, folks, that day in, Jer uh, in Jericho, Jesus entered Zacchaeus' home as a guest. But please don't miss this. He left Zacchaeus' home as his master, as his savior. But please don't miss this next statement. You see, Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised these good works. He was saved because he responded by faith to Christ's deliverance and salvation. And then, having trusted in his Savior, he gave evidence of his faith by promising to make restoration to those he had wronged. Again, I believe the lesson or the application is very clear here. You see, saving faith is more than just pious words and devote feelings. Saving faith creates a union with our living Savior and results in a changed life. You know, as we wrap up here today, I was reminded when I got to this point in my preparation. Several years ago, when I first got married, I was working for my stepfather through Bible college, and we were building a very large home, a multi-million dollar home in the middle of the New Jersey Pine Barrens. If you've never been there, you've never seen so many pine trees in your whole life. They can't touch them, in fact. The land is very well protected. And often during lunch break, I was the only Christian working at that time for a bunch of construction workers. Have you ever been there? You know what I'm talking about. I would want to clear my head, pray a little, and, uh, and, and get some exercise, honestly. Sometimes it was just to warm up because it was so cold, we'd have to break the ice, and never mind. On one particular day, I remember, um, I went further than I had ever gone before from that construction site, and I, I don't remember when it happened, but I can remember the moment I realized I have no idea how to get back to the construction site. In fact, uh, uh, it, uh, after about 45 minutes of being lost, as the sun was beginning to set, I remember thinking to myself, now I think I understand why people who are lost in the woods walk around in circles. Um, every direction I turned looked like the very same way that I had just come, okay? I was lost. Have you ever been there before and lost in the woods? If you have, uh, you, know, you know the overwhelming feelings you have of, of being graph, you know, geographically lost. And, 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 and I am convinced as I read this text that Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus helps us to see and understand that many of the very same feelings and stresses that we feel when we're lost 
are present in the heart of someone who is spiritually lost. Perhaps there's someone here sitting here today who is struggling to find a sense of direction in their life. Uh, there's no sense of peace in their hearts. You're feeling as if you're walking around in circles, getting nowhere fast. And every direction you turn looks the very same way you just came and leaves you just as empty. Folks, the good news, the good news I see in this text is Jesus came into this world for the very purpose of seeking those who are lost and who need to be saved. How does one go about being found? I love sharing the good news of the gospel. The scriptures tell us how. First, we need to understand that when it comes to God's standard, we are spiritually, I love this, we little people, okay? We are spiritually we little people. Not some of us, not a few of us, but all of us, according to the scriptures, have sinned and we fall short of God's glory, God's standard. In other words, we can never make ourselves good enough to be accepted by God. And the penalty for our sins, according to the scriptures, Romans 6.23, is death, both physical and eternal separation from God. But I love the verse doesn't stop there because it goes on to tell us that although the penalty for our sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bottom line is this. While we were all sinners deserving and separated from God, in hell, Romans 5a tells us that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us and Christ died for us. He died in our place and for our sins. And then raising himself from the dead, it says here, three days later, just as he promised he would do, he demonstrated to the world that he was indeed the victorious son of God and that he had utterly destroyed sin, death, and the devil. And as a result, God is able to offer each one of us the free gift of eternal life. But like any other gift, it must be personally received. And the way that we receive that gift, according to the scriptures, that gift of eternal life, is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone to deliver us from our sins. In fact, John 3.16, Jesus tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, his begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I, I kind of end up hybriding New American Standard, King James, and anyway. Don't miss the point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Whoever believes. So in the very same way that Jesus stopped under that tree of that sinner a long time ago, I want to stop now. I want to urge anyone who has not yet placed their trust in Jesus to come down and place their trust in him so that they might be found. You know, it's funny, as we were standing up here, and I saw a few of you when we were singing, Zacchaeus was a wee man. Did you notice how many of you, when we got to Zacchaeus come down, you were sticking out your finger like an old school teacher, scolding everyone, Zacchaeus, you come down. You know, I, I, I don't think that's how Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus. I, I do believe he spoke very firmly, but I also sp think he spoke firmly with a loving, tender compassion in his heart for Zacchaeus. And likewise, my friends, I'm not here this morning to point my fingers at any of us or judge you, but I am here to point you to Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No man comes to the Father apart from him. And according to the scriptures, Jesus is still seeking the lost. He's yearning to save you. Has he found you? 
Doesn't matter what you've done wrong, no matter what others think of you, he wants to save you. If God is speaking to your heart, I beg you, don't put it off. You may never have another opportunity to do so. Those who are believers here, who have already placed their trust in Jesus, I have four practical takeaways. If you haven't taken any notes, may I encourage you, as you're preparing your hearts for communion, I want you to think and meditate on these thoughts. First, I hope you see in Zacchaeus that no one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond redemption. In Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus, we see a great spiritual miracle taking place in the heart of everyone who has genuine faith and repentance. And therefore, we should offer the gospel boldly and unashamedly to anyone because there is hope. After all, he saved us, didn't he? No one is beyond redemption. The second thought I see here is he reached out to all men. While Jesus reached out to all men, I believe Jesus possessed a very special burden for the outcast of society. Yeah, the religious leaders were surprised and they were upset that Jesus so openly associated with people they considered undesirable. Yet Jesus made it very clear that he was a friend of sinners and he told them, I did not come to seek or call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus had a deep burden for those who were considered outcast. Third, we see that our master's mission was active, not passive. Our master's mission was active, not passive. He didn't wait around for people to come to him. He actively and compassionately. By the way, this is the last week of his earthly ministry here, as you know, before he went to the cross. He's actively seeking relationships and opportunities to interact with the lost in order to save them. And the final application is one that brings me great conviction and a great deal of thought this week. I want you to see that genuine salvation leads to a, a changed life. Genuine salvation leads to a changed life. Yes, Zacchaeus got a great view of Jesus when he was looking down at him from the tree, but it was until he hosted Jesus in his home that he really got a lot more. It was there you see that his blinded spiritual eyes were open, and by faith he recognized Jesus as his Messiah, his Savior, and his Lord. And in the spontaneous response from a heart that was made clean and forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus, Zacchaeus' actions reveal that his repentance and his faith were genuine and his life was changed forever. And likewise, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ now indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you and I are new creations. Our purposes, our feelings, our desires, and our understandings are fresh and new. We see the world entirely different through the gospel lens that Jesus has put in our heart. And according, and I realize I have the wrong reference up here, Galatians 2.20, I, you, are crucified with Christ. It is no longer I are you that live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. With these applications in mind, as we prepare now our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table together, I want to urge all of us to think on and meditate on these things as we uh, participate today in the Lord's table. I want to urge all of us to take time personally to thank God that nobody including us, you or I, is beyond his redemption. Prayerfully ask yourselves, how willing are we to put aside our prejudices, our fears, and our concerns about what others might think about us to reach out and love those who are different from us? 
Ask yourself, how willing am I to go intentionally outside of the walls of this building, of this church, and actively seek to make friendships with people we know are lost so that we can introduce them to Jesus? Are we too passive, brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to sharing our faith? And finally, again, ask yourself, how has my life changed since I gave my life to Jesus? Am I seeing in my life the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control? Are we becoming like Jesus? And if not, what is keeping us from being more like Jesus? Are there things that need to change in our hearts? In a moment, we're going to uh, uh, take time. I want to let you have some time, as I do myself, to pray about these things. We welcome every believer here to participate in the Lord's table. We want to allow some time now to pray. After we have prayed for a while, I'll close this time in prayer. And uh, then as the Lord has prepared your heart, we ask that everyone would just go to one of the four stations in the room here, pick up the elements or the communion cup, go back to your chair and open it because it does take a little bit of uh, challenge to open it. And then we'll participate in the Lord's time together. Let's go ahead and pray on these things.